Hello and welcome to Will We Make Make It It Out Alive? I'm Amy, the poop detective. And I'm Jen, the magical mapper. This is episode five, the last episode of season two. Using GIS to determine where the sun don't shine. And by inverse, where it does. Speaking of sun, Jen, why is the sun always very mad at the clouds? Because they get in his way? They just keep throwing shade. (laughs) Nice. Anyway, if you've been listening to us lately, you know that season two is all about our food system and food sovereignty and some different people and organizations that are working to ensure everyone has access to fresh, healthy foods. But just in case you haven't been listening, we kicked off the season with an introduction to our current food system and some alternative food systems with Nicole Garden from WSDA. Then we talked with Liam McNamara about the Emergency Food Network's Mother Earth Farm to discuss how they work to grow and distribute fresh local foods to those in need in Pierce County. We also talked to Tiari Gill and Jordan Egbert with City Fruits about gleaning in Seattle. And in our last episode, we learned more from Holly Prohaska about how the Urban Farm Collective in Portland, Oregon, helps to ensure people have access to community land for gardening and provides education and mentorship programs. That's a season right there, and we are good at seasons. In this episode, we will learn more about how to use GIS to find the best location for a new garden. Anyone that's ever done any gardening knows many plants require full sun to grow to their full potential. Since I recently moved, I've been trying to figure out how many sun hours various parts of our yard get, and it is a slow and tedious process that only vaguely estimates actual sun time. We have a bunch of trees on the property that make it really tricky to determine. So I'm actually super personally curious about this. See if I can maybe do it on my own property. Probably not, but maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. Speaking of the sun, do you know what happens to nitrogen when it's exposed to the sun? Mm, No. It becomes daytrogen. No. (laughs) Also, why didn't the sun go to college? It already has a million degrees. You're hilarious. One bar. (laughs) Did you know beer is like the sun? Wait, it is? It rises in the yeast and sets in the waste. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Okay, okay. Enough of these amazing dad jokes. Let's welcome Tanya Cowie. Yes, Tanya is totally the bee's knees. Tanya has a degree, a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Science from the University of Washington, Tacoma. She has over 20 years of experience with GIS and geospatial analysis, and she's currently moving from working as the GIS programs manager for the Port of Tacoma to becoming a GIS developer for the city of Tacoma. Kind of confusing with all those Tacomas. (laughs) Right. It's in Tacoma. If you didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She also spent many years working with the private consulting group Geoengineers as a senior GIS architect, working on a variety of GIS and data analysis projects. When she's not busy working, she's still out there sharing her love of GIS. She manages the Washington Women in GIS and Technology group, volunteers to teach GIS in her nephew's classrooms, and teaches girls to code in after school programs. Whoa. Right? Today, we're going to talk with Tanya about another project that she volunteered for with the Tacoma Hilltop Urban Gardens, where she used GIS to help prioritize where to add new garden plots. Thank you so much for joining us, Tanya. Well, thank you for having me, Amy and Jen. I really am honored to be here. Woo-hoo. 
So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes. You did introduce me very well, but uh, I've been working with GIS for over 20 years and mostly have experience in enterprise GIS architecture, integrating business systems with GIS and geospatial data management. Those are some of the areas that I specialize in. Moving right into this project, do you want to tell us a little bit more about how you got involved with the Hilltop Urban Gardens, otherwise lovingly referred to as HUG? Yes. Well, it was about the time that we were building a community garden in my area that I live in, in North Tacoma. It was a typical garden down the street, one small parcel of land where you could, you know, pay a certain amount and get like a plot of land for the season. And it was just really fun being involved in that project during that time. So I became a little more interested in just community gardens in general. We donated some of our food to the food bank. And I just thought that was a really great way to start giving back. My friend actually volunteered for a hug at the time and asked me to come to one of their volunteer events. And what was so unique about the Hilltop Urban Gardens or HUG was that they look at the whole neighborhood as a neighborhood-based food system. They still have one plot of land that's the main garden for the whole neighborhood. But instead of just having that plot of land, they actually incorporated all the neighborhood residents, you know, and used their plots of land too. So use their properties, use their parking strips and incorporated that as part of this. It's more like a food system than just the community garden. With that, they had obviously a lot more opportunities to grow more food and people would grow, you know, certain crops on their yard. And then they all share the food together as kind of one community. They were founded in 2010 at the time. You know, when I did this project, it was uh, 2014, they had 158 volunteers and they had 98 homes within what they call the hug zone. So it's about 18 acres, you know, so think of three blocks by two blocks area in kind of central Tacoma that participated in this hug program. And, you know, I think it was every week they'd come together and do a hug grub. And that was where they brought all the neighborhood goods and and veggies and stuff to the neighborhood food share. And at the time, they had about 15 homes participating in, in that share. So a little bit different than just kind of the typical community garden that you'd find in your neighborhood. Right. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. The other thing I did want to mention this because it's really important to differentiate is that They're really interested in not just food charity. Obviously, that's providing food for the people, but it does encourage that savior mentality. It does not really address the root cause of inequity, food inequity, Mm -hmm. but they're also very much for food justice. So they seek to look ways to address the injustice in the food system. And more importantly, they're into the food sovereignty. So they seek to examine and make equitable food system power structures. So, you know, in Hugs context, it's community controlled food system that creates equity and justice in oppressed communities. So they really are looking on ways to make that food system equitable, you know, overall, and not just here's some food. Which is awesome. Yeah. Right. Do you know, did somebody within the neighborhood start this? Yeah, I'm probably not the best person to answer. I know Dean Jackson, who is the person I worked with when I was there. They lived in the neighborhood and they saw this opportunity. I believe they were the founder of HUG. I don't know if it was just them or others that got it all going. But they lived right down the street from the garden and spent lots of time and knew all the neighbors. So it wasn't just somebody, you know, living in a different area, you know, coming in and saying, let's do this cool thing. No, it was very much community root based. And nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. 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 And I know Dean has since moved on, but I. Mm-hmm. don't know the new directors, but it is a really cool organization and it is very different than the typical kind of community garden, come by your right. plot and you're done. Right. Yeah. yeah. So how did this GIS project come about? 
Well, you know, I was working at Geoengineers at the time, but it wasn't part of our work. It was just really based out of an interest I had to help put GIS into the community and, you know, help the community do something good. So it started out with just creating maps for the volunteers of the current growing areas because what happens is they do have that central garden you know, within the neighborhood, but they have volunteers that come out and they actually help, you know, plant or weed or do whatever is needed, build beds in everybody's yard. So, mm-hmm. you know, in that neighborhood, if you want to participate, you can still get volunteers to come help maintain your garden and beds and, and do everything. So the first thing we did was I offered to make some just very simple maps of here are the garden beds in each property. Here's the hose bibs. Here's the tool storage areas. You know, so when you have new volunteers coming in, it kind of made it easier for them to just say, here you go, go check out this property. Here's all the information you need. You know, don't go on this person's property because they don't, you know, participate in the hug program. Right. Right. That's probably some helpful information to have. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it just empowered them to, you know, coordinate the volunteers on the harvesting and planting and and maintenance of all the all the beds. So it started out with, you know, making the simple maps. Oh, and then we also did a growable lands inventory. So that was the other thing that we wanted to really identify by uh, parcel, you know, by every residence how much area did we think that they had to potentially grow food on it? Because one acre of CSA actually supports about 30 households. And when we did this growable lands inventory, which identified the open areas within the yards and the parking strips, you know, any place that we could feasibly plant something, we determined that they had over five acres of open area and about almost an acre and a half of parking strip alone, just within the 18 acres. Wow. You know, if one acre supports right. mm-hmm. 30 households, I mean, they had over that and just the parking strips alone. Right. So mm-hmm. it really became apparent that, you know, they had some huge opportunities to potentially build this community and support this community very well. So once we had done that, then I happened to see this uh, shadow analysis that we'll talk about in a minute at a conference. And I just thought, well, it was being done in a downtown corridor. They were building a new building. And I just thought, well, that's a really cool way to see what you're building in the shadows and where the sun is during the day and stuff. And I thought, well, maybe we could do this with this area because, you know, they have 18 acres, almost 90 households. Mm -hmm. You know, how could we really use this Mm -hmm. wherever they want to prioritize, right? You know, Dean like that idea and was on board. And I thought, well, let's just try it. It's kind of a pilot study. They also thought it'd be a good idea to have something like this to show. They looked at this as a pilot and they could start the conversation with neighbors that maybe they hadn't really had the opportunity to talk to. And people like maps, you know, they might be able to say, Mm -hmm. here, you know, we can, can we just have your parking strip? Because that's, we'll get this much out of it. These items just made it easier for them to talk to the community. And, you know, obviously they do grant funding and things like that. So just really Mm -hmm. help start those conversations and provide motivation and inspiration to participate to the community members. You see your plot on a map and say, wow, I didn't know you could grow that much on my little piece of property. Let's right. go. You know? <laughs> yeah. So it was really out of a, an idea that we thought, let's try it. You know, I'd never had an opportunity to try it before. And so we just thought, why not? <laughs> right. Yep. Awesome. So did you do all of the GIS work for this project or was there some baseline data that was available already? No, it was pretty much from scratch because, you know, this is kind of a small organization, all volunteer based. And, you know, I just felt it would be a fun way for me to put my GIS skills to use. So again, started with those maps to provide to the volunteers and identify all the growable lands. And then the 3D kind of shadow analysis came because Again, we wanted to try to gain support from potential funders Mm -hmm. and prioritize the areas to be grown. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I pretty much built the whole GIS from scratch. And not that we had a lot of layers, but 
you know, we had a very old aerial photo that wasn't the greatest to maybe digitize off the areas of the parking strips and, you know, open spaces and things like Mm -hmm. that. We didn't really have a buildings layer. So when I did the shadow analysis and we had to kind of estimate the building heights and that wasn't so tough because most houses were one or two stories. So that wasn't terrible. Mm -hmm. But again, had to digitize all those, had to digitize uh, the growable areas, parking strips, all those things. And then, yeah, I just ran the analysis um, yeah, by myself too. So did they have this idea or did you bring all of the GIS ideas to the group and say, hey, do you know what GIS is? This is how it can benefit your group? Yeah, I brought them to the group. The funny thing is the volunteer maps were the first thing that they go, oh, this is kind of nice. Because mm-hmm. then they could just say, here, go down to 1925, whatever street and go water the yard. And they'd never been there before. But here's a map that shows them exactly where the hose bibs are so they're not wandering around somebody's private property right Right. so yeah yeah like you're saying especially if you're walking on someone else's property yeah some people had dogs you know you didn't Mm. want to go back in the yard Mm, i mean we actually put that on the list we put their contact information it was just kind of a nice way to centralize all the the great work and information that they were doing and like you said empower the volunteers right because volunteers they cycle through and you get some (laughs) that stay years but a lot of them are first timers and and Mm -hmm. so it was nice to have something So with the shadow analysis, can you tell us a little bit about that and what problem you were trying to solve? Yeah, so really we were trying to understand which growable areas that we initially identified within the hug zone got more than six hours of sunlight during the planting and growing season. So we were really looking at, you know, June, July, August. So not really the entire year. We And again, this was kind of a pilot study. So, you know, just again, it was trying to understand we have all of this area, all this great opportunity. Where do we prioritize? And that was really what we were trying to answer. And could say, well, why don't you just go out and look at the properties, which you could, <laughs> could do that and kind of measure everything out. But you know, 18 acres, that's a lot of time dealing with that many homeowners. It just would have taken a lot of time. Yeah. (laughs) Also, I can just tell you from, like I said, trying to do this on my own property, because the angle of the sun changes every day. So I'd have to go out three or four times probably over the course of the year and take measurements all over my yard. So it still seems like this would be easier, obviously, creating all those layers. Not necessarily, but... (laughs) But for your larger area, definitely. Yeah. But no, to your point, yeah, once you have it, now you have it, right? So then you could just keep on running, you know, every year or increase the time that you're looking at. So yeah, I do think it was the most efficient way to do it. And again, you don't want to tax these volunteers either. I mean, you don't want to take them away from the very important work of harvesting and planting and watering and maintaining. But yeah, I think this was a good way to tackle a large area. You know, we basically calculated the sun positions and we use one day per month. So we just chose a day because you could... You first have to calculate where the sun's going to be for the time that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And so... We looked at June 15th, July 15th, and August 15th. We just chose, hey, let's try, try the middle of the month. You could absolutely get more detailed with this. Sure. Right. And then we just calculated one sun position for every hour. And that's what we used to start the shadow analysis. And then from there, we created the building shadows. So we used the Esri. Esri has some great models that you can actually download and modify to create a layer of building shadows. So it basically showed you for those times where the shadow is going to be throughout that day for every hour. And then... And we intersected that with the open areas that we originally identified in the initial kind of digitization. And then we just summarized the results. And it basically came back with a grid of either, yes, you had shadows on this area or no, you didn't. And so we just basically summarized that information to show what areas actually got over six hours of sunlight during that time period, June through August. Mm-hmm. And so that was pretty much it. It's very, it's very simple overall. And it really 
was a very straightforward process. I think the only thing that caught us was you had to make sure you were in Greenwich Mean Time. When I first downloaded mm. it, it was in a different time zone and it really was throwing off the results. And so interesting. just make sure you know what time zone you want to work in. <laughs> So how long did your part of the process take? Once I got the layers all figured out and that time zone issue, I mean, Mm -hmm. couldn't have been more than a day total. It went pretty quick after I got everything plugged in. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up looking at 46 time intervals over the three days analyzed. And so really not that much data because we really reduced it. Now, if you were going to go, you know, every hour for the whole year and every day in the Mm -hmm. year, yeah, that obviously would be a lot more robust. But for for what we were needing. Right. Still probably way more accurate than people measuring it out in their yard. Right. Well, definitely faster. I have to say that. Probably faster. It was about a two by three block area, you said. Mm -hmm. And how long? long did it take you to create the base data that you needed for it? Yeah, I think the buildings, again, we estimated the building heights, but that probably took the longest and and just digitizing all the little parking spaces and what I thought was an open area. You know, my even back in 2014, my aerial was from 2012 because, you know, aerials weren't as prevalent as they are now. Mm -hmm. And again, this was on my own time. I would guess maybe about a week on and off, you know, just guessing. Mm -hmm. And is this process scalable if somebody wanted to do it on a smaller area or a larger area? Yeah, I absolutely think it's scalable. I think that these 3D volumetric shadow analyses are used on cities, you know, I mean, so I think Mm -hmm. absolutely. And now if you could get the building layer, and obviously a lot Mm -hmm. of the buildings, I think even City of Tacoma now has a building layer with heights in it. So Mm -hmm. yeah, we could go back and rerun this and see how accurate we were. It is kind of amazing to think of how much more baseline information is out there versus 2014, and especially versus like 2005. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Don't a lot of cities now also have like the 3D views of their buildings Mm -hmm. available? I don't know if that would help in this kind of analysis. Yeah, because I actually had to extrude all the buildings that you have Mm -hmm. to kind of create a 3D rendering of the building. So yeah, if you could already start with that, it would totally help. So do you know how many properties were identified as potential sites that you wanted to prioritize? Yeah, so that was kind of fascinating. What we learned was that most of them were good. Wow. <laughs> Most of them had oh, okay. over six hours of sun. In fact, I don't know if you looked at the presentation materials and there were only a handful, like maybe three or four areas within properties that didn't have at least six hours of sun in the areas that they identified as either parking strips or open areas, potentially oh, wow. providing gardens. So yeah, it was good. That is fascinating <laughs> to me. I mean, I'm thinking about Tacoma and I know kind of generally where this is at in mm-hmm. Tacoma and like you're saying a lot of two-story buildings and stuff because yep. even for me I'm like well I wonder if most spots in my yard also get six hours of daylight then I mean we have some large trees though, yeah so they're a little bit taller than a building but very interesting yeah I think you'd be surprised because I was actually surprised we're like what and so it also realized that we do need to go back in and probably add fences and trees and mm. you know not that this is a heavily treed area but to your point Amy it really would make a difference right, right? and six hours you know that is a minimal for something to be viable right So say you Mm -hmm. had a hot plant that, you know, tomatoes, maybe Mm -hmm. six hours wouldn't be enough in certain cases. So maybe you wanted to look at 12. I don't know. You could could certainly adjust your criteria. Mm -hmm. But I did find it surprising. It was almost depressing because you're like, 
what? I almost all good, you know? So, I guess you the? didn't need me after all. No, yeah, I, I, yeah, totally. Like I'm looking at, I want to say four, <laughs> that really wow. four areas in that whole 18 acres that maybe don't get six hours of sun during that growing season. So, mm-hmm. but it was good. You could, again, say you're not letting your opinion affect this these results, right? right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Do we have, do we in general, we people. Do we have tree data now out there available? I know a lot of cities have to count their trees now for even for stormwater stuff, actually. But mm-hmm. uh, are you guys aware of if that's something that's readily available in kind of a 3D or at least where you have the height of it and yeah. what it would look like leaf out? Or is that something you'd all still have to digitize, do you think? The city, I mean, they have an urban forest program, so they right. might have some that you could request. Right. It's probably there somewhere. I would think. Yeah, and I at my job. Your other job? My other job. Rude. Attitude like that, and you're never getting paid. <laughs> <laughs> we just did a tree cover canopy analysis, and we had to figure out how to do it. And it took us a long time, and we figured out all the tools and then did it. And then after we got all done, I started seeing all these tools online where the data is already there for you. So the data might actually be out there for it wouldn't have the heights and things like that, but the area that's covered by tree canopy would be there. So that would be part of that equation then. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe you could use LIDAR or something else Mm -hmm. also to do like a land classification, I guess, you know, and LIDAR is so much more available now. So Mm -hmm. yeah, Yeah. that's great information though. Mm -hmm. Do you know if there are equivalent tools in ArcGIS Pro or open source software today to run something like this since you ran it in 2014? Yeah, there actually is. It's called Sun Shadow Volume in ArcGIS Pro. Okay. But you do need 3D analysts to run either of these tools, either in ArcGIS or ArcGIS Pro. Okay. I don't know of any open source. I know I just kind of peeked around on the internet a little bit. And what I mostly found, there are sun calculators, certainly, that kind of show you where the sun path is across your property. That's pretty readily available. Mm -hmm. And there was one where you could actually draw in your house and I'm guessing we probably had to put the height of it too and it would kind of give you the shadows. It looked like it would take a lot of time Mm. if you wanted to do more than just like a regular old house square or whatever. That's awesome though that you found some stuff, yeah. Yeah, we can add some links in our blog to some of those resources if people wanted to just look at them for their individual properties, which is what I was doing after I found them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to look at your property that way, right? Kind of in 3D. If you're big, nerds like us absolutely <laughs> and right. you want to grow some stuff on your property Heck yeah, Heck yeah. <laughs> so was this analysis easy to do or did you need special knowledge about anything in order to run the tools and we're kind of assuming that we're talking to people that have a background generally in gis yeah i think it was very accessible i mean the one thing i would recommend is that you had a little experience with model builder if you were going to use you know the arcgis one i haven't used the arcgis pro model so maybe mm-hmm. that's more integrated but you did have to kind of open up model builder change your parameters really understand the flow mm-hmm. of things and but mm-hmm. 
very gotcha. straightforward. And Esri made it mm-hmm. so easy. They have everything there. So it, it really mm-hmm. almost is plug and play. Yeah, so. if I had to hazard a guess, I would guess that probably the sun shadow volume might even make it easier now. Yeah, I would think that in pro now, you know, I didn't look until you guys right. asked the question. And I was like, Oh, they do have something out there. Now I want to go kind of play with it. And see <laughs> how much easier is it now? So it seems like one of the big limitations when you ran this was a lack of existing data. Do you think this will be easier to replicate today because there's generally more data available? Yeah, I think it'd be more accurate, much more accessible with the imagery. You could get that. Mm-hmm. The city has, I think, most of these data layers ready to go and it'd be much, much faster. So probably the only thing I would still have to do is kind of the open space. But right. mm-hmm. yeah, I think it'd be much easier. So did you mostly figure this out through trowel and error then? Yeah, just because I wanted to play with it and you know how it is. I tried, Amy. <laughs> oh, was that one of the jokes? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh it was trowel and error. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't get it. I didn't either. Good one. So presented this research at the Esri User Conference. What was that like? <laughs> It actually was really fun. Mm -hmm. And I presented before, Mm -hmm. but this topic really resonated with people. And I think it was because it was not the typical, I'm doing it for work sort of topic. This was kind of more of a fun, like, hey, I'm just interested. Let's do it. Let's geek out. Right. And I think that I got more questions after this one than I ever thought I would. I think a lot of people are involved in their community gardens and they Mm kind of know what that's like to be able to say, hey, I have some skills. Maybe I can help my garden out or just look at it a different way or just have fun with it. I mean, right. And I I thought it was really fun. Definitely different than I had ever presented before, for Mm -hmm. sure. Also, while we have you here, wanted to talk just a little bit about Washington women Ah. in GIS and technology, because you're here and (laughs) you are superstar. So maybe you could just kind of walk us through what that is and what your role in it is. Yeah. All right. Washington Women in GIS and Technology is a meetup group. It's a networking group for professional people that work in either GIS and technology. We do encourage mostly women to join, but we don't exclude men necessarily. (laughs) But it's really a way for us to meet and share ideas, uh, networking, learn professional technical skills. We founded it. In fact, Jen is one of our co-founders. We (laughs) co-founded it in 2012, I believe. I guess I did not realize, (laughs) Jen, that you were a co-founder. Why didn't we interview you on this earlier? Geez. Hello. Because <laughs> uh, it's more interesting to interview other people. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So we try to meet monthly and we kind of alternate either a social networking get together or a technical meeting discussing more technical side of things or professional skills. And so it's been really great. We have about 140 members. I mean, we're not really official. We're very casual. You know, you don't have to pay a membership fee or anything. It's just a way for us to really get to know the GIS community and specifically around helping women that work in that field. Mm-hmm. I myself have even participated in it a few times, and I will say that it's been a great group for learning. In addition to the social side, I've participated in a few (laughs) of those as well. Super fun. Yeah. Just to not necessarily be at work, but still enjoy the company of others that like to geek out on this stuff. 
Yeah. 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 It's been, it's been fun. And uh, I think people like it when they're new to the field too, just meeting people that can kind of connect. I think that's what is most beneficial by just joining or just being part of it is Mm -hmm. learning and getting those connections made. Cause I think that's when I get most excited about when somebody has needs help on something and they find that person that can help them. I mean, I think that's what really the group is about. So Mm -hmm. very cool. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. So if somebody wanted to join this group, how would they do that? We have a website that you can go and you can actually contact us through the websites. We'll share a link on okay. our mm-hmm. blog too. Yeah, go to that link and you can just reach out to us. We'll add you to our email distribution list if you want to, or you can also check out upcoming events there too. And we have other resources, like we're starting to record our meetings now since everything's virtual. Very cool. I'm going to have to go look at that and see if there's any cool <laughs> stuff I need to learn about. Yeah, you should. Yeah, there's some good ones out there, yeah, I think. So, definitely. Yeah. Yep. I'm not in Washington anymore, but you guys don't have to know that. (laughs) Hey, we don't discriminate. It's it's open. (laughs) So yeah, it's open to anyone. So do you want to add anything else about any of the other volunteer projects that you've been involved with? Yeah, what I think most about this Hilltop Urban Gardens program is that I wanted to try something and I found the opportunity to do it. I would say you have something that you want to learn or share. You can always find somebody that will appreciate that and that you can help them do their thing. The Girls Coding Club that I presented at was just something I wanted to try. I'm not a coder necessarily. (laughs) I'm learning JavaScript and I'm probably using it more now, but this was a couple years ago before the pandemic when we had offered at my nephew's school just a after school sort of girls coding program for second to fifth graders. And it was something that the teachers really loved the idea of. I'm not a professional teacher, but just love the idea that I was willing to come share some knowledge, engage the kids and just learn something together. And it was just a really fun experience. The girls taught me more. I love seeing them learn. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that was just so much fun. The same with teaching GIS in classes. I mean, I really love seeing the kids. They're so engaged at that age and kind of the K through five or even middle school age. They're still really interested in learning new things. And we tried to, you know, just don't worry about being perfect at it. Don't worry about, you know, having all the answers. I did try to go in and talk to the teachers and say, well, what are you learning right now? And try to integrate it with what they were learning. And of course, GIS can be applied to so many things. It wasn't hard to do. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) So I would say, you know, if you're wanting just, you know, side experience or just helping out that way, yeah, I'd say go for it and, you know, just speak up. That's the one thing I would say that I was, at first I was waiting for them to come to me. And I think that's a mistake. Go to them. And if you really want to do it, keep on going to them. And almost like, here's my project plan when you have me here. Right. Because they're busy too, right? Right, So yeah. yeah, that seemed to work well for me. I, I bugged them enough to get in there. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, I feel like that's very helpful for other people to think about. Because like I said, you are kind of a superstar in that you do <laughs> a lot of different really great things for your community. And it does seem like you are reaching out to try to find problems that you can help with, which I think is just great. Right. And that's a great tip for other people. Don't just wait for opportunities to come to you. Go out and make them. People are definitely interested. They just might not know what can be done. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Because I mean, hey, I want to teach GIS in your class. What does that mean? They're not going to know. I mean, maybe some do. (laughs) Dan, how are you going to and how is it going to, you know, even one of the projects we did, they were learning on sound energy. And I was like, how am I going to do GIS and sound energy? (laughs) 
you know. But then all of a sudden, I found these great noise maps from the national park system that、ah. you know measured noise levels over the United States. And then I found this app that you could measure noise levels in the classroom and outside the classroom and on the playground. We made a map of the different sound levels within their school and their playground. So totally simple, but yet it provided the information they needed. Taught them about decibels and. You know, hey, it's really loud during the playground. You know, and how loud is loud, and right,、yeah. and what's a typical classroom sound like. You know, so it just made it very accessible to them when they saw the dots on the map, right? So they、right. thought that was kind of fun to see. Awesome. Is there anything else you would like to add?、Uh, oh, that I hate that question. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I just want to add. I'd like to thank you guys for having me on. No, that's our job. We totally you no, no for coming on to the show. I, I love what you guys are doing. <laughs> See, you're following your passion, so I appreciate being part of it. <laughs> so awesome! Thank you so much again for sharing more about the project. I really enjoyed learning about it, and I hope that others can find ways to replicate these kind of projects in their own communities, or think about other ways that they might be able to identify projects where they can help out in their communities.、Mm-hmm. Awesome! Yeah, it's been really fun. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it has been fun. Thank you. So there you have it. The end of episode five. And the end of season two. Wow! Finally, so sad. So sad. Using GIS to determine where the sun don't shine. In this episode, we learned more about how one can use GIS to determine the best place to put your garden. Do you like my new accent? No. <laughs> <laughs> Allowing urban gardens to be more efficient with their limited space. We also discussed how you may be able to share your skills with your community in new ways that you haven't thought about. And one of the best ways. To build community is to find ways that you can use your knowledge and expertise to help. That's right. We also touched on the Washington Women in GIS and Technology Group. Link on our website. Jen, what? Why can you never make the sun stop? I don't know. Because it's sunstoppable.、Uh, <laughs> um. Being able to grow food, especially when there's a lack of access to land, is a great way to help develop community and help minimize the environmental impacts of industrialized agriculture. The Hilltop Urban Garden is a great example of food sovereignty. It puts growing, harvesting, and processing fresh produce in the hands of residents in this area. It keeps decisions about what food. To grow locally, and it helps build communities through gardening. Tanya found a way to contribute her skills first through the development of simple maps, and later with the sunshade analysis to identify best places to garden from the properties that they had access to. I think the biggest take home from this episode is that we all have skills that can help make our communities better. We just need to identify where to plug in.、Mm. That makes this episode really a crossover between GIS and community involvement, allegedly. And on that note, thank you so much for joining us this season. We're going to be taking a short break, and do we know when we're going to get back on air?、Mm, I don't know, but it won't be too long. Anyways, we'll be taking a short break, and then we will start up with season three, which will include four episodes all about the sustainability in prisons project based out of Washington State. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And subscribing is really important so that when we do come back, you get those new episodes right in your.、Uh, so rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please let us know what you think at outalivepodcast dot com or facebook dot com forward slash Will We Make It Out Alive. 
We have had a great time and can't wait to be back next season. Until then, will we make it out alive? This is Amy the Poop Detective. Until next season, I can't wait. I'll be waiting for you here. Oh my gosh. Oh wow. And this is Jen the Magical Mapper just saying bye as usual. All right. Are you ready to stop recording? That's the black square. Mm-hmm.